you, Justin. God bless you. Oh, bless you, loved ones. Um, let, let me also, along with uh, Pastor Justin, say thank you for your amazing faithfulness that you have shown week after week after week. It's such a blessing. And thank you for responding to missions the last couple of weeks. You see, our banners are still up, and there should be uh, uh, faith promise cards in your bulletin in case you were not able to be with us. You want to help with that. We appreciate it so much. I think... Uh, as of last week, we made a faith promise commitment of a, uh, almost, I think, 180,000. Um, so we thank the Lord for that. <clears throat> and uh, we, there's plenty of room to add. So thank you. Um, I need to give you a heads up. Uh, I am not going to do the message that you have the uh, notes for today. And um, you say, well, uh, Pastor, why did you do that? Well, because with our printing schedule and everything, I always have to have everything ready Monday well, actually Tuesday, before the Sunday that it's due. So as of Tuesday, I was pretty sure that's where, where we're going. I hardly ever change a message, but uh, from time to time I do. So I'll tell you what I will do. I do think grasping the blood of Christ, or the blood covenant, I should say, is important. So we're going to do that this Wednesday night. We'll do, we'll do grasping the blood of, of uh, the covenant this Wednesday night, and then, because remember, it's stuff. That means we can put anything we want in that series. Um, and, then, and then we will uh, we'll, we'll kind of uh, put everything that we're going to do on Wednesdays together. It'll, it'll work fine. But I want to talk to you today about something that the Lord has uh, been just, I, I, I need to be able to sleep again. I'll tell you the truth, I need to be able to sleep. I need to be able to get some resolution to what the Lord has been doing in my heart for several weeks now. And uh, yesterday I, I decided this is the way that I, I need to go. Today will be offensive to some. I hope not. Today will be hardening to a few. I, I hope not. But I think to others it will be enlightening and it will be liberating and, in, and anointing. I want to talk to you about the harvest today, and I want to talk to you about people who are not part of the harvest. I mean, if you're not a Christian, we hope you'll come and be part of the harvest, but you, you are workers in the harvest. And I want to talk to you about some things that have been really boiling in my heart, not boiling like angry, but just they've come to a place they're done. And it's time for me to speak these things to you. Um, we are in an age that's very difficult. We know that. We've talked about that. This is, a, this is a culture we're in. And I'm not just talking about good people, bad people. There's good people in the culture, bad people in the culture. I just mean the very atmosphere of the culture is, is very difficult right now. It's, um, you know, it's hard to find people that are happy. Even people that are going to heaven aren't happy about it <laughs> like we need to be. And um, we're, we're in a very unhappy culture and it makes, it makes for communication to be difficult. Um, but I, I feel like the Lord has put something very special on my heart because I know we love Jesus. This is not a message about you need to love Jesus more. I know you love Jesus with all your heart. That's not an issue. Um, this is not pastor scolding. I am, I am exhorting and I am rebuking today and I'm encouraging but it's not a matter of your love. Goodness gracious, saints alive, I know you love the Lord. But sometimes, let me tell you how we feel sometimes. This is an Easter card that a very dear friend gave me uh, a couple of years ago. And this just kind of is the way we feel, uh, even when we come to church. <laughs> Bless my family. Bless my family. And smite my enemies. Uh, I love the inside of the card, not what was written, but it says, whatever you're praying for this Easter, may it be so within reason. And uh, I think that's sort of the way we feel. Um, I want to tell you that in regard to the harvest, we are in a time, we're in a situation where I believe with all my heart that the reason things seem to be just floating along is because God is presenting more and more challenges in front of us to help us decide how we're going to view the harvest. 
Now I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, in just a moment. I'm going to do that quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm going to point some things out. And then I want to tell you what I believe is the warning that God has put on my heart. Um, it is, I, I do want to give you this, this proposition to begin with. It is possible for the children of God, even you in this church, even preachers like me, it is possible for us to know right things, but to misapply them so that we not only miss, and I'm, I'm, I want you to hear me, I'm deadly serious about this, we not only miss what God is about to do, but we end up opposing what God is about to do. You say that's unthinkable. Well, think about Herod receiving the wise men and they said, we've come to worship he who is king of the Jews. God went to all the trouble to create a star. That was not an alignment of the planets. It was not a normal uh, um, uh, astronomical event. This star moves back and forth. This star stops over houses. This was a divine hand of God. And they say, we've come to worship the one who's born king of the Jews. They understood what the star was about, even though they didn't have thorough understanding. And Herod said, I don't know where, they said, where is he? And Herod said, I don't know. So he called the most religious experts he could find. In our culture, they would be the senior ordained ministers of the assemblies of God in our culture. And they said, where is, he said, where is the king to be born? And they said, anybody that passed Bible 101 understands that. We know where it is. And they even quoted the scripture. It's in Bethlehem. But have you noticed that even though they knew that if this was true, everybody in Israel ought to be running to Bethlehem, but there's never any indication whatsoever that they ever made one step to go to Bethlehem themselves. That's why the wise men were wise. They're the only ones that went to Bethlehem except for the slaughtering army that, that Herod would send. But you see what happens is we get into a mindset and if it makes sense to us, we lock onto that mindset without understanding that God may be saying something else entirely. Let me give you an example. Uh, if the camera can just follow me over here. Uh, one of my favorite movies from my childhood is... Uh, uh, called In the Navy, Abbott and Costello, uh, who, I who I think may be the two witnesses, I don't know. But um, I love Abbott and Costello. And in the, in the movie In the Navy, it's a, it's, a, it's a film, you know, to encourage people during World War II. It, it came out in, I think, 42, right after we entered um, World War II. And he is an assistant pastry chef on the USS Alabama. So he, he says that I've got to prepare donuts for 13 officers. And he said, I, I, so I've got to get busy because I've got to cook 28 donuts. And Abbott, the straight guy says, no, you need more like 91. He said, no, I've done the math. He said, I need 28. And he said, that's not true. He said, he said, multiply this. So he says, okay, let's multiply. Seven times 13, that tells me how many donuts that I need. And it's not 91. He says, because seven times three is 21. Seven times one is seven. 21 and seven is 28. I need 28 donuts. And, and the guy says, no, 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 no. It's, it, that's not the way you figure it. He, he said, let's divide. He said, uh, um, let's, uh, let's, let's do it this way. Let's, let's divide and let's do, to show you that it's wrong, if you divide seven into 28, you're not going to get 28. He said, I've done it, and I do. And he says, I don't think so. He says, watch, seven into two. No matter how hard you try, seven won't go into two. So let's put two over here. He said, but seven will go into eight one time. So you put seven uh, or excuse me, you put one, subtract it, you've got seven, it'll go one time, seven plus one is eight, 28 donuts. And the guy says, that's wrong. He says, look, let's add it. So he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He says, this shows you it's more than 28. So Costello says, 
3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. I loved it as a kid. I tried to show my teacher at school. She was not enamored at all. But can I tell you something, loved ones? This is the kind of thinking that goes on in our churches all the time. People have locked into a wrong set of facts and they'll go to their grave trying to prove something that's not true. I think of a sermon I listened to the other day, Joel's army, we're part of Joel's army. And I'm not trying to be critical of those that would agree with this thinking. But in Joel chapter one and chapter two, the response to those of us who have been saying that judgment is coming and the, and the heavens are being shaken, people say, we're not going to be judged. God would never judge us. We're part of Joel's army. And they talk about uh, Joel chapter one and even into Joel chapter two talks about the army that marches in line. They never step out of line. And, and they say, we're, we're God's last day's army. We're Joel's army. But loved ones, even a cursory reading of Joel 1 and 2 shows that that is an army of judgment. It's not an army of saints. But we are so eager to make a case that God's people will never be judged that we put a wrong mindset on a clear teaching of Scripture and make it come out to 28. You say, well, yeah, but in chapter 2, God says, this is my army that I'm sending. Yes, and every time, almost without exception in Scripture, uh, that God sends judgment, he says, this is my nation. This is my judgment. This is my sword. And there's a big difference in being something from God and something of God. And so we have a, a generation of Christians today, and it's worse than Pentecostal charismatic circles even though we're a Pentecostal church, we will distort the clear teaching of Scripture like we did during the last election cycle. We will distort the clear teaching of Scripture to say that God will never judge His people. The prophets of Jeremiah, God will never judge Jerusalem. Jerusalem cannot fall. And they took the very words of God and twisted them into a realm that God never intended them to be twisted into. I told you this what might be offensive. That's not my goal. But we need to understand, you know, when God says Edom is my wash pot, he, Edom doesn't say, oh, there's a new spiritual gift. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Wash pot. We're the wash pots of the kingdom. That was a horrible thing. God was saying, I have judged the nations of the earth and all I can use Edom for is a wash pot. He said, I will use Edom to judge other nations. I will put other nations through the ringer using uh, 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 Moab, I mean, using Moab. But Moab at no point was to say, hallelujah, we're the Lord's wash pot and that's a great spiritual thing. No, God was saying, that's all I can use Edom for. And loved ones, my heart is broken. My heart is bleeding today because I know that there are more and more Christians that all, I'm not saying they're not going to heaven. God's grace is amazing. We're all, that, that, every one of us should have written amazing grace because it's amazing any of us are going to heaven. But we need to understand that we are so busy trying to prop up our, our ability to hear from God and our prophetic declarations we're so busy trying to prop up what we think we are in him that we don't understand some of us are in danger of just becoming wash pots. And I think God is bringing, I think this is why things just seem to be floating along right now. We're saying, oh, why, why is God waiting? Why is God waiting? God is not waiting on the world's wickedness to ripen. That has already happened. But God is waiting for the harvesters to move into a place of moral and spiritual integrity or we will destroy the harvest. We've got to remember there's always difficulty during the harvest. The Bible says in, in an unrelated story where it was not about what I'm talking about right, right now, but it talked about the fact that during the flood, there's, I mean, during the harvest, there's always a flood. It was an Old Testament observation that has a spiritual application 
whenever it's time for the harvest, Jordan floods. And we need to understand that whenever God says it's time for a great harvest, you need to expect floods. You need to expect opposition. You need to expect distortion. You need to expect a twisting of truth where boundaries are boiled over and paths are covered up and what were safe places are now no longer safe places. We have a tendency during the harvest to only then begin to pick up a little bit of truth and we have a knee-jerk reaction. The Bible says that the man planted the wheat and everything looked fine. They came up together. The early rain brought up the wheat and all of the grain began to turn that golden brown. But as it moved closer to the harvest time, they realized that some of the grain that was golden brown was turning black. And they realized, oh man, this is, is tares, the darnell. It was called bastard wheat because it grew up with the wheat, but it wasn't wheat. It looked just like the wheat, but it wasn't the real thing. And they realized we, we have got a field full of wheat and tares. And then it slowly dawns on them. An enemy has done this. And loved ones, I believe right now the Lord is saying we're in the point where we need to begin to see things and say an enemy has done this. And we need to ask God for the wisdom to deal with it because that knee-jerk reaction, the reaction of some of you is, well, let's just pull it up and burn the, burn the Darnell. And the owner of the field says, you can't do that because if you do it your way, you'll destroy the good with the bad. You'll destroy the wheat with the tares. I want to tell you that we are in a moment where the greatest danger to the church is not government overreach, although I think that's a big problem. We are in a situation where the greatest threat to the church is not communist oppression like the film showed, although I believe that's a huge problem and we need to pray for the persecuted church. The biggest thing we need to fear right now is self-righteous men who know where Messiah is born but won't go to see Messiah. Self-righteous women who have said, look, I will not be a part of working with someone that sees things differently than I do. I will not go to rescue any harvest that's unlike me. I say let's bind them up and burn them in hell without understanding the critical damage that will be done to the real harvest. Guys, I want to tell you, I'm going to say it one more time before I'm going to tell the story Jesus told, then I'll wrap this thing up. Uh, and, and please believe me, I'm not just in a mood today. I have wrestled this out with God for close to six weeks now. I have argued with God over some of it. I have gone to despair over some of this. But I want to tell you the most dangerous thing is us having enough knowledge to become comfortable in what we know without letting God bring clarity we point the finger, we accuse, we criticize those that are not like us. And I'm not even talking about the world alone, that happens, but we do it within the church and we are in danger of dividing the harvest workers. And when the harvest workers are divided, the harvest is not gathered in. An enemy has done this. An enemy has planted this seed and his desire, many of us think what we're doing is for the purging of the kingdom. But what we've do, we're doing is we're listening to a wrong voice. We're, any way we figure it, we come up with 28. But what we don't understand is that the devil is trying to get us to see something that's not there. Or misunderstand what is there. And if we don't get corrected from our misunderstanding, let me tell you something loved ones. The next step is to oppose the very thing that God is doing. And I think we're at the point where <coughs> some are making a decision. I will trust my own path. You're not making a decision to oppose, but you're making a decision to go with your own judgment. And what it's going to happen is you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of the wrong fight. You're going to find yourself, God saying, I love you, but all I can do with you is make you a wash pot. And that is going to affect our eternal reward. It's going to affect the unity in the body of Christ. 
And I'm telling you, we're on hold right now. We're floating right now because the Holy Spirit of God is moving among the churches to help us understand what we're embracing and what we need to let go of. Let's go to the story Jesus told. Now, Jesus talked a lot about the harvest, but can I tell you this? His harvest stories always went one of two ways. It always went to the lost and those who love the lost. And he said, I want you to know there's a great harvest. Pray for the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers. The, the field's already white unto harvest. You know, he's pushing them this way. But, but there was another great strand of teaching where Jesus looked at people that should have known about the harvest should have understood the harvest. They should have been the vanguard of the harvest. And Jesus kept telling them, you don't understand the harvest. You make it hard for those that want to get saved to come in. You bind men and women with burdens that neither you nor your fathers have been able to carry. And in the name of holiness, you don't understand that you have become yourselves an enemy of God. He illustrated it when they were at the, the uh, temple during the holy season. They had all of this set in. They, they were going to require that the temple tax, which was not biblical, and not the way they were doing it. There were, there were offerings that were to be received. Was, had to be received with only one kind of money. And the, the Jewish coin was not throughout the kingdom, but you could buy Jewish coins by trading in whatever coins you had at a pretty healthy exchange rate. They were, they were, it was a money-making proposition and that you couldn't pay your offering unless you paid it in the right coin. And people would work for a year to care for a lamb without spot or blemish. And the lamb was fine, but when it got there, it wasn't good enough for the priestly examiners. But it's okay, don't worry. You can trade it in on another lamb. It'll cost you everything you've got. But at least your lamb will be right. And Jesus went in, you know what he did. He went in and said, not in my father's house. And the only thing we do with that is we keep missionettes from selling brownies in the foyer. <laughs> you shall not make my house, my father's house, a house of merchandise. Missionettes, stop it. It's not what he's talking about. He says, don't you ever do anything that makes it hard for people to come to Father. Don't ever do anything that makes it hard for the harvest to be gathered. And he did a lot worse than turn over a chair. And I hope I didn't break my chair. I love that chair. <laughs> but he told stories about the harvest like this, okay? Um, Luke 10, I'm sorry you don't have any of this on the screen or in notes, but you can, you know, back in the old days, this is Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm reading from the New International Version. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, loved ones, here's an expert in the law. He wasn't asking for light on a dark subject. His intention was to test Jesus. And whenever test is used this way, it was given with the intention of failing the student. Okay. Uh, a good teacher gives a test to show what the student has learned. A bad teacher gives a test to show what the student has not learned. So he was giving this question to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the core. Those two laws, those two commandments are the commandments that lead the way for all of the others. There were, depending on if you count these separately, there were 612 or 614 laws that were given. And if you got these two right, everything else was subservient to it. Love the Lord with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. 
do this and you will live. But that's not enough. You see, Jesus knew that this should be enough, but people who are not right in their hearts can know the scriptures backwards and forwards. I have found through the years that I, every church argument I lost with somebody is because they could speak King James English better than I could. It says that he wanted to justify himself. So he said, well, who is my neighbor? Loving God, I can understand. We understand God, but who's my neighbor? Look at the idiots that are around us. The Romans. Just over there across the border, we've got the Samaritans. We're surrounded by idiots. It's like we, we've called a village idiot convention and everybody's in town. So who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus told a story that was about to expose the deepest, darkest sin in this man's heart. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And every time you read about Jerusalem, when somebody leaves, wherever they're going, they go down. And when somebody's going to Jerusalem, wherever they're coming from, they go up. I always thought that everything must be south of Jerusalem. But, but what's going on is that um, Jerusalem is like 2,300 feet above sea level. You know, it's like a half mile above sea level. And, and uh, Jericho was 23, or, or excuse me, was 1,300 feet below sea level. So he's going down from Jerusalem. He's going down a road that is going to drop 3,600 feet in less than 20 miles. It was a treacherous road. You know, nowadays we build highways to go back and forth to make those roads not so dangerous because our cars aren't designed to go, our cars are designed to gradually go up. But that's not the way. In those days, the straight road was the way to go. And it was a dangerous road. He said he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed over the other side. We know the story. We tell it to our children in kindergarten. Um, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, and we're going to see how unthinkable this was in just a moment, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii uh, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I, I want you to understand the, the conclusions we draw from this story are true and good. But I think we need to get back to really what the original meaning of the story was. And I think it was this. Jesus was saying, you want to know who your neighbor is to understand that you have to look into the heart of a man who had every reason to pass by, but he stopped. See, we, we look at it kind of differently, but Jesus said there was one who stopped and we both agree he was the neighbor, but I want you to see something in his heart that caused him to stop and it's unthinkable to you. It's unthinkable to the priests. It's unthinkable to the Levites. Now, as I said, this was a dangerous road, less than 20 miles, but it dropped 3,600 feet narrow and rocky with so many dangerous paths. Um, the church father, Jerome, called it the bloody way or the red road. Um, he said, because if you go on that road without taking proper precautions, you're going to end up bleeding. You may end up dead. Um, as late as the 1800s, or maybe I should say, as, I may be saying it backwards, as recently as the 1800s, um, money had to be paid for safe passage. And as late as the 1930s, now there's a better road there now and you're in a big bus and you're safe and all of that. But as late as the 1930s, 
people were told that even if you have an automobile, you must travel in groups and never stop for anything on the road. Be sure you get off the road before it's dark. That's how deadly this road was. So Jesus picked the worst road in Israel to illustrate this journey on. He talks to us first about the traveler. Now, the thing I see about the traveler, it's not that people didn't travel alone, but people would travel at least in loose groups. Like I may not know Glenn, but if Glenn's going to, Jer to Jericho from Jerusalem, I'm going to want to stay within sight of him because that offers kind of a mutual protection. The robbers were less likely to do a crime if there were crowds or people were there that could come to each other's aid. It happened, but everybody that traveled the bloody road understood you don't travel alone. So the traveler can be called reckless and foolhardy. He was doing what he knew not to do and he got himself in trouble and he should have known better. Okay. He should have known better, but let's keep going. There was the priest. Now the priest was going. There's, I don't know that the priest was alone. It doesn't say that he was alone, but he came by and what he did when he saw this man left half dead, he crossed over to the other side of the road. You say, well, why would a priest do that? He's religious. Why would he take that approach? Because some people know the word so well, but they put more preeminence on the liturgy of the temple than the life of a man. See, if he got near a dead body and touched it, he would be considered unclean for seven days. So if he got over there and tried to help the man, his response would have probably been, it! I was scheduled for the sermon tomorrow. Now I can't preach. I was scheduled to offer the sacrifice. Now I've got to wait seven days to be clean. And that means I've lost my turn. It'll be years before I have this opportunity again. I'm a holy man and I can't afford to have my holy work interrupted by somebody that had the audacity to die on my watch. See, I know people like that. Their rules are far more important than anyone's life. They're the ones that say, you're not supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath day. Jesus says, you don't understand. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was to give reprieve to man that was suffering. The Sabbath law was never intended to say a man who is starving can't pick grain. It was given to tell people who make a living by picking grain. This is not a time for work. It was not a sin to pick up grain on the Sabbath and eat it. It was a sin to do your work on the Sabbath day when it was designed for another purpose. Jesus said, you've got to understand, man was made for the Sabbath, not, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But people that are committed to the liturgy of the temple, they don't understand that. They'd rather you say something right and do nothing then say something the wrong way and give life. Then the Levite came. Perhaps he wondered if the man was a decoy. See, Levite was a holy man, but there wasn't the same restriction on him that there was on the priest. He knew that in this road where there were all these rocks and places where you could easily fall off, he knew for a fact that men would, would put women out as a decoy or even children out as a decoy. And when you went over to approach them, you would be jumped by these evil people and it wasn't worth taking the risk. And guys, we've all known people. We've all known people like the priest and we've all known people like the Levite that said, that's eh, risky. It's risky. It's risky to start that project. It's risky to take that class. Risky to give interest to that. Wisdom tells me to leave it alone. See, there are always people that know stuff, but they don't think the value of the person lying on the ground is greater than your safety net. And then the Samaritan comes. 
Now, loved ones, let me tell you, I don't know. I know there are people in America that hate like this, but I don't know of a hatred between groups in America, like the hatred between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. I don't know of any racial group. I, maybe, maybe some gangs, that's not my world. But that, that hatred is so alien to us because they, they would go out of their way to not even get close to the territory of one another. Now you've got to understand, the Jews had issues. God told them to be separate from the world. And as a lot of people do, they take the commandment of God without understanding the heart of God. And so they put something God never intended on to everybody else. So God was saying, you're not like any of the nations of the world. You be separate and you be a light to them. They took it to mean we won't have anything to do with you. And God never intended that. Every time you read that attitude in the Gospels or even in the Old Testament, understand that's what happens when we don't understand the heart of God and we make His commandment say something it never said. In fact, I know this. I know that if I were a, a Jew, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing the Jews because other cultures were just as bad. The Samaritans were probably just as bad. And I've known people in the AG that are just as bad. But if I was a Jew and I was walking along and I heard a woman cry out and I looked over there and there's a woman giving birth to a child. She thought she could make it from point A to point B, but the baby's coming and her husband's saying, help me, what do I do? The official position of the Jew was don't get involved because if you help them and that baby lives, you've added to the Gentile population. And that's one more problem you're going to have to deal with. He said, better for the baby to die than to live a Gentile. That was, that was the way they lived. To put it in our culture here, it would be like we hated people in Georgia with a passion that... Um, and we mistreat them the way the Gamecocks did the Gators, for instance, last night. And uh, we, we just, we hate people from Georgia, but we've got to get to Jacksonville. We've got to get to Jacksonville. So we hate them so much. It's not enough to pack enough food that you don't have to give restaurant a business. It's not enough to have extra tanks of gas so you don't have to give the gas stations business. You drive, you don't even want to get close to Georgia. So you say, I'm going down to Jacksonville. And then you call later and say, well, I'm in Houston and I'm turning around and I'm, and I'm going to go along the coast. And you say, that's silly. That's what they would do. That's why they were amazed. They were amazed that Jesus ended up in Samaria and ministering to the Samaritan woman. That's not the way you do things. You see, when Israel went into captivity, not Jerusalem, not Judah, but Samaria, the northern kingdom, about 150 years earlier. So when they went into captivity, the, the Assyrians took many of them into the land of Assyria, just like the Babylonians took folks into Babylon. But they, they were especially cruel people. And they said, if we leave anybody behind, you know what happened in Judah? They left people behind and they lived for the return. And the people in exile lived for the return. We're going back to the land. They said, we're going to fix it in Assyria. They said, we're, we're not going to have this problem lingering. We're going to leave some behind to take care of the land. But we're going to send people in from another land and we're going to make them citizens too. And so what happens, the Jews and the um, uh, Sumerians intermarried and they produced a race that was half Jew and half Gentile. And if there's anything the Jews hated more than Gentiles, it was a half Jew. The Gentile was just evil, but a Samaritan was a corruption of something that's holy. So they especially hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans fought against uh, Israel in the wars with Greece and with Rome. And th there was just an absolute bitter hatred. And so when Jesus said, this is about a Samaritan that stopped to help a Jew, Jesus was saying something unthinkable, but he wasn't saying you Jews ought to be nice. He was saying, understand this, a person that is my neighbor, 
understands that even though everything in their life says you should hate this person, they do the opposite. And I want to tell you, loved ones, that's the only kind of churches that will be able to absorb the harvest that's coming. Too many churches want people the same color, the same background, the same political party, same sports teams or whatever. We don't want anybody that we disagree with. That, see, that's what the enemy is doing right now. I've never seen a time in America, at least not since the Civil War, no smart aleck, not that I was around then, but historically, <laughs> not since the Civil War has there been a time when we are more divided on what's acceptable and what's not. And it's not even disagreements. You know, it used to be, well, my party didn't get elected, but we get another election in four years. We'll win that one. No, now it's venomous. Now, if you don't agree with me, uh, you are a racist. If you don't agree with me, you are a socialist or, or a fascist. You know, um, if you don't agree with me, you're this, that, or the other. There's no room to accept anything unlike us. And I want to tell you, the devil has always tried to do that in cultures, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not here today to talk about the world. I'm here today to talk about the church. In the name of what we perceive as holy, we have put a barrier around our churches and within our churches that unless God helps us, we will not be a part of the harvest. We will not be a part of the harvest. This is what Jesus told that man that tried to defend his ungraciousness. Three things. Number one, Jesus said, we must help a man even when he has brought his trouble on himself. Now, we don't know for sure that's what the traveler did, but I think that's what he did. And I think that's what the Jew would have understood. He was in a place he didn't have any place being under conditions. He didn't have any business being. So he brought this on himself. Lovelings, I'm going to ask you because, I'm not going to ask you to lift your hand because if it's true of you, and it's been true of me, you don't want to lift your hand. You don't want people to know it. How many times has someone come under misfortune or trouble, sickness, or even perhaps the clear judgment of God and something in you said, yes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was coming. I want to tell you, it's horrendously ugly. It's so ugly, all we can do is joke about it. But I know there was a, an issue. It had nothing to do with the church or anyone in the church. But it was an issue where my wife was not being treated fairly, in my opinion. Again, not, no church people. Didn't have anything to do with church. But I, I thought, this, this isn't right. I, I love my wife and I'm going to take care of my wife and we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting and I am not going to allow anyone to do this to my wife. And the Lord gave a prophetic word about the situation from somebody he said, God is going to help you with this. He's going to do it quickly and he's going to do it miraculously. And I said, yes, it's about time. God's moving. God's moving. And the Lord said, there's only one thing that can stop it. And I honestly, I thought, just show me who it is. <laughs> I'll pray them to the edge of hell and they'll come begging for forgiveness. Just show me who it is. I really, I said, just show me. And God said, if you don't let go of your anger toward the people that are causing this, it's going to hinder everything I want to do for Ramona. I don't like that. I mean it. I, I don't like that. It took me, you say, oh, pastor, you ought to know that. Let me tell you something. When you get this crap in your heart, you don't think straight. And you don't remember what you need to remember. That's why it's important that you spend time with good people in the presence of God. And I, I worked through it. And you say, well, that's good for you. I, I worked through it. And the trouble is about every few days I have to work through it again, but I worked through it. And I, and I found out that we all have a tendency to have trouble welcoming harvest 
when we say they got themselves in this mess. It may be a sickness that's in their body. It may be an economic condition that surrounds their family. We, we are eager to help people who have made the same mistakes we make, but we're not eager to help people that have brought their trouble on themselves. I remember one of the greatest men I've ever known. I, I was talking to him about a situation, and he just said, well, I don't suffer fools gladly. And you know, what that told me, and, and I understood what he was saying, but what it told me is, this is stupid, and I'm not going to get involved in this. And I thought, this is someone who needs help more than anyone I know in my personal life. But because you think they're foolish, you're not going to be a part of the rescue. That's too commonly found in Christians. We must help men and women even when they have brought their trouble on themselves. Here's number two. Any person of any nation, of any persuasion, of any belief who is in need is our neighbor. Anyone in need is our neighbor even if they are not like us. Our help must be as wide as the love of God. God's breaking this down. If we're the kind of people that will help folks that don't tick us off, we're in sin. If we're the kind of folks that will help people as long as they're the same as us, it's a sin. And here's the third thing Jesus communicated. He said, the help must be practical and not just feeling sorry. I tell you, the passage that was used, the word uh, that, that uh, let's see, how did it read in NIV? Um, he took pity on him. Some translations put adjectives with that. It, was, it says that he was moved in the deepest part of his soul. It wasn't just, oh, bless his heart. You know, because Southern, bless your heart, is you stupid, you know? <laughs> it was, his heart was shattered over what had happened to this man. He's lying naked on the side of the road. He doesn't even have any ID. Nothing, nothing, nothing to bring comfort, not even, a, not even a shirt left under his head to comfort him while he died. And then you see the Samaritan put him on his beast. He bandaged his wounds. He poured in oil and wine. He takes him to the innkeeper, gives him money and says, I will be back this way in a few days. And if you've incurred any more expense, I will take care of it. And then Jesus says to the scribe, go and do likewise. Lovelands, I, I want to tell you, um, I, I've got to try to wrap this up, but I, I, I've referred to a dream that the Lord gave me. Um, I was going to look it up, and I, and I haven't yet. I'm supposing between 15 and 18 years ago, something like that. I don't know. And the Lord showed me in the dream, he said, uh, I, I was saying, Lord, help us know how to move. And God gave me several steps about the future. It was then he told me we were going to build this building and, and some other things. And, and the Lord gave me a series of dreams. And one of the dreams he gave me is the church. We were still in the other auditorium. And the church was, uh, was worshiping. And then all of a sudden I saw movement in the church. One entire part of the church went off. Uh, some went, some you could tell were leaving the church. Others just went as far against the wall as they could go. And they started, well, I won't go into the details, but I knew they were, they were pulling away from the rest of the body. I couldn't tell if they were leaving the church or they were here. And the Lord <coughs> showed me, this was one person, I was trying to reason with this group of people. And I was saying, let me help. Let us work through this. And everything I said, this is what they said. And I'm not trying to make me as a hero in this. They said, that's not enough. Well, can we do this? It's not enough. Well, what do you want? Do you want an apology? It's not enough. 
What are you wanting? It's not enough. Nothing you can say or do will ever be enough. We have been hurt beyond repair. We'll serve the Lord, but we will serve him over here. Some left, some stayed. And I'm thinking, my word, this is unfixable. Then someone else came up and the Lord showed me something in just a minute. And this is what they said. You don't know anything about following the Holy Ghost. We're tired of you giving us sermons and not having power. We have power. We have signs and wonders. And we're pronouncing a curse on you. And we're going to tell people everywhere we go, until you line up with the Holy Ghost, we're standing against you in the name of Jesus. And I got my long finger out and I started to lay into him. And the Holy Spirit said to me, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You will be just as guilty of manipulating spiritual truth as they are if you open your mouth, walk away. But it devastated me. There was, it was not a big group, but it was, and I'm pointing at y'all, not because it's y'all, but because it was on that side of the church <laughs> over in Brown Chapel. The other group was, was huge. This group was small, but this church stayed in the church. And I realized that I was going to spend all of my time arguing with people that said, we're not spiritual enough. We're not holy enough. We're not righteous enough. You say, why haven't you told us this? Because it sounds like I'm whining. And I don't want to be a whiner because I know the damage whiners do. And right in the middle was the center part of the church. And the Lord said, you've got to focus on this because this is the church that I'm going to grow. This is the church that I'm going to work with. And I said, Lord, is, are you telling me the church is about to split? And this is what an angel in the dream told me. I'm telling you that this is the only thing that can make this church split. And you've got to understand there will come a day when it is perfect alignment for that attitude and that attitude. And if you let it, it will split the church. But if you'll walk with me, it will purge the church. And you say, well, yeah, I bet you felt good about that. It haunted me. It has haunted me for years. Lord, when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Lord, what do I do to walk in holiness? What do I do to walk with the right response? And loved ones, I've never even told these details to the church because I was so afraid. I did not trust my own heart to say what needed to be said. And I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to say the Lord has said, this is that time I showed you. But I want to tell you this, if, if what God showed me those years ago isn't what we're going through now, it'll do till that gets here. I want you to know this is about the harvest. I thought it was about keeping people in the building. It's about the harvest. And I want to tell you, the enemy is doing his best to put you into a camp where you say, it's not enough. It's just not enough. It's not enough. This is about me. It's not enough. This is about my offense. It's not enough. This is about my hurt. It's not enough. And you know what? There's not a church in America that will be able to do enough. And it's about those of you that you've, you've always been judgmental. You've always been harsh. You've carried it with you everywhere you go. You say, well, people listen to me. They, they think I'm right. It's because you're such a bully. They're afraid of you. You're surrounded, you've surrounded yourself with people that are afraid to speak the truth into your life because you're so mean. They're afraid you'll bully them too. And loved ones, I'm, I'm here to tell you, we've got decisions to make. Some of you need to leave the church. You, you really need to leave the church because I'm not going to fight with you. You need to find a church where they believe the same crap you do. Or you need to find a place where a church isn't interested in going forward and you can just, you can just rest in your sin. But I'm telling you if, you, if you want to go forward, you're going to have to come to the conclusion somewhere that 28 is not the answer. It looks like it on paper, 
but 28 is not the answer. This is the kind of thing that makes me so vulnerable to cheap shots and, and hurt. I'm not trying to manipulate, but I am, I, I'm trying to set you free. I'm saying you can go somewhere. If, 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 if you feel this church is so out of line, then, then we bless you as you go. If you feel this church needs to focus all of its attention on you, I'm sorry, we have a harvest to get in. And it's hard. You say, Pastor, you've never talked to us this way. I know. I, I despise this. Now, this is the kind of thing I'll spend the next three nights trying to get a good night's sleep, worrying what I said or what I didn't say. Not because of you. That's just me. I'm telling you, I'm not wired this way. But loving as I'll tell you this, I'm not wired to carry bad math. I'm not wired to carry unrealistic expectations. <laughs> we, I come from a family of farmers. I'm not much of one, but I, I enjoy it, but I'm just, I don't have a green thumb. I kind of have a brownish yellow thumb. I don't know, <laughs> but, I, but I love gardening. My dad, we, he would help me with gardens. We'd do a little garden in our yard. We didn't have much room, but my dad put in extra time on eggplants. Now, the funny thing about it is my dad hated eggplants. I hate eggplants. Not because they don't taste good, but because my dad hated them so badly, I don't think I've ever tried an eggplant. Uh, if I, I, I may have one time, but, and, and it may be excellent, I don't know. You know, if you want me to try it, cook it up and send it home, say, try this, but... My dad hated eggplants, just hated eggplants. But there wasn't a crop he watered, watered more or weeded more. He picked them up like they were a newborn baby. And he cared for the eggplants when there was stuff he loved to eat. that he was saying, you, you get that, grab, get a handful, bring it in. Well, he's, he's babying, he's nurturing the eggplants, you know. And I guess I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. I said, Daddy, you don't like eggplants. He said, no, I hate eggplants. I said, why do you take such care of eggplants? And he looked at me and I didn't understand. I would understand it later when I became more interested in girls and in baseball, but not at that moment. I didn't understand it. He said, son, your mom loves eggplants. Now that was funny because I don't remember her cooking eggplant much. She will later explain to me the reason she didn't cook eggplants. Your dad hates eggplants. So it, was a, it, was a, it was a circle of love that I couldn't understand either way. But he said, your mama loves eggplants. And all I understood was that daddy hates them, but he brings them in for mama. Later, I'd been married for a lot of years and I asked him about that. He said, oh yeah, he said, the, the look on your mom's face when I brought in a basket of eggplants, he said, I'd rather see that smile than anything else she'd cook in the garden. He said, you know something, son, that garden was about her, not about me. By then, I had a wife and four kids. I was beginning to understand a little bit. But loved ones, I'm t I know I've been offensive, and I, but I, I swear to you that was not my intent. But I do believe it was necessary. I do believe it was necessary. Because some of you, I'm trying to save you from yourself. I'm trying to save you from your foolish doctrine and your foolish expectations. And I'm, I'm, I'm praying for your, for your very destiny before God. I know you're going to heaven. I just want you to be a little happier on the way. But if we can ever get to the point where the harvest isn't about me, the harvest is about him. It's about the smile on Jesus' face. And if we ever really see his face, we can rejoice over people we don't like. We can rejoice over people we don't agree with. We can rejoice over people who are of persuasions that we think are of the devil. And you know what? Not only do we learn to accept them, but we just might learn to love them. 
God's after a healing. This is the way I want us to end the service today. I know those of you watching online, you're not able to do this with us here, but you can do it at home uh, or, or some variation of this. We normally pray for people to come and have their needs met. And, and we're, we're not saying we're not going to do that today. We would never say if you want to come to Jesus, this isn't the time. It's always the time to come to Jesus. But loved ones, I want to tell you, this is, this is a time. God, if you want to come to Jesus, his arms are wide open. Get, a, get with a ministry worker and say, I want to come to Jesus. If you need prayer for a certain need, uh, we, we, we'll be glad to do that. But this is a time. It's not between you and somebody else. It's between you and God. You say, well, I guess I need to go apologize. Wait till you get to the point where your apology is sincere. You know, don't ruin a, a good apology with an excuse. Well, I'm sorry I said this, but you just killed the apology. Don't ruin a good apology with an excuse. This is the time for you and God. It may take five minutes. It may take five days. You may spend the rest of the holiday sorting through this stuff in your heart. Because I want to tell you, it's hard to believe and it's hard to embrace that 7 times 13 and 28 when you believed it all your life. It's hard to believe that somebody just might love God as much as you do when they don't do the things you do or go to what you go to. It's hard. That's not an easy thing. But I will tell you this, the sin of self-preservation, the sin of accusation, the sin of slander, the sin of assumption, those are viruses that the church better take care of a lot more than COVID. The self-preservation where you've got to, even in the holiest moments, we tend to be more interested in justification than justice. Accusation. True compassion serves those who have brought trouble on themselves. I talked talk to you about this last week. Isaiah said, if you want revival, if you want to move of God, stop pointing your finger. Slander. Stop speaking the things you're speaking about God's people. You say, what they're wrong. Then drop the charges. An assumption. True compassion does not allow us to assume someone's heart when we don't know their heart. You remember the story? Justin, make me stop after this. Okay, tell me that I have to stop after this. Um, Remember the story in the Old Testament? Samaria is under siege. There's no food, very little water. The people have resorted to cannibalism. And the king of Israel comes out. He's not even named, if, if my memory serves. He comes out and he's walking along the wall of the city. And two women begin to make accusation to tell him what a lousy king he was, to tell him what a horrible leader he was. They said, we're here eating our children and you're walking around in king's robes. You don't have a care in the world. And that king, I don't think he was a righteous man at all, but he did something very godly. He stopped, he looked at them and he tore his kingly robes. And he showed that underneath his kingly robes, he was wearing sackcloth and ashes. Loved ones, I, I'm afraid that we are, we are excelling the heresy hunters on the network have done it. And I'm afraid that it's moving into our churches. We have excelled at pointing. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know. But all you see is the outside. You don't know that they're wearing sackcloth and ashes. You don't know that they're probably doing more to seek God than you are. And guys, I'm telling you, it's going to poison you. Some of you, if you don't get a grip on this, some of you will end up not only missing what God's doing, you will end up opposing what God is doing. I'm going to ask you to do this. If you can only do it for five minutes, 10 minutes, you can still be gone by lunch. I'm going to ask everybody to find a place of prayer. I'm going to ask you to fill up the front. 
If you can't do that, kneel in the aisles. If you can't do that, find a place where you are. I'm asking everybody as the worship team brings us back into the presence of God, stop taking knowledge home with you alone. Deal with it in the presence of God. Find a place at home near your couch, in your kitchen, your bedroom. If you have to slip away from the rest of the family, say, Lord, I don't want there to be any wrong math in my life. I don't want there to be any finger pointing. I don't want there to be any accusation. I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I don't want to be somebody that's a commentator saying the problem with this group is this, or the reason they can't get the harvest in is this. No, you're doing nothing but hindering everyone else. Roll up your sleeves and get busy. And say, Lord, would you deal with something? You say, Pastor, that's pretty big talk telling us to get things right in our life. I'm going to tell you, that's what I've been doing for the last five and a half weeks. I've been spread out on my face before God. I've been weeping. I've been crying. I've been calling out. I've been saying, God, if you can't fix me, kill me. And I meant it with all of my heart. I'm better off dead than to walk in the kind of error that you're showing me that is possible for even precious people of God. Lord, kill me or change me. You say, that's pretty radical prayer. Yeah. Tell me about it. But God is about to, God is about to move us. I, and I believe, I tell you what I believe, I believe it's critical over the next four to six weeks. Uh, 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 four to six months is what I meant to say. I believe it's critical that we make this adjustment because, because we're going to find ourselves either in this group, either in this group, or we're going to find ourselves in this group. And we're going to move forward. Would you find a place to pray? I love you. God bless you. <laughs>